0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our smartphone app, or at the website SupChina.com. We offer original reporting and perspectives on a huge range of China-related topics, from the Belt and Road to the environment, from the latest online phenomena, to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the sidelines of the AAS Conference, the Association for Asian Studies in Denver, Colorado. Jeremy Goldcorn was unable to join me today, which is regrettable, but on the bright side, I don't have to think of some clever way to introduce him. We still read with some regularity about officials taken down by Wang Qishan and the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection for various forms of malfeasance, Among the many questions that have been raised by analysts and scholars about Xi's anti-corruption drive, one is probably paramount, and that is this, it's, is the drive more about actually targeting corrupt individuals, or is it more about securing Xi Jinping and removing political enemies? Now, thanks to the work of our guest today and of his research partner, an answer to that question is emerging. I am pleased to introduce Peter Lawrenson, Assistant Professor in Economics at the University of San Francisco. Peter is the lead author, most recently, of a paper called Personal Ties, Meritocracy, and China's Anti-Corruption Campaign, which he co-authored with Xi Lu. It's deservedly been getting a lot of attention, in no small part because it's a good data-driven paper. Today, we're going to unpack that paper and examine what it says and what it doesn't say about the anti-corruption drive, at least in its first few years. So, Peter and welcome to Seneca. Glad to be here, Kaiser. Peter, uh, before we get started, some of our listeners who also listen to Syndicate Network shows like Tech Buzz China and China Econ Talk will have actually heard about this new program uh, that you are offering at the University of San Francisco. And you're, you're actually personally involved in this. Uh, tell, tell us about that program and about your role. Uh, And by the way, this is not a paid endorsement. I'm just giving you a freebie.
1: (laughs) Okay, thanks. Um, Yeah, I appreciate the chance to talk about it. Um, So this is uh, starting this fall. We're uh, accepting our first class for the Master's in Applied Economics program at University of San Francisco. And the focus of this program is going to be on the digital economy. So it's going to be the first economics master's program uh, really anywhere in the world that is entirely centered on understanding what economists are doing in tech firms and learning that skill set. So what that means is learning the the economics ideas um, that underlie what they do. So understanding game theory, auction design, market design, reputational systems, things that, that economists have been thinking about for, for decades, but have really now had the opportunity to uh, put into place when they're designing markets like those run by Uber or Airbnb, right, that are bringing people together trying to make business work. I'm directing the program and uh, I got involved in it because it's it's fascinating to me, and there's so much going on in San Francisco. While a lot of my grad school classmates uh, have dropped out from their tenure track jobs or jobs at the Fed or whatever to uh, to join the tech business, both in the startups and the established firms, um, because it's just it's just so interesting to not be doing academia, but actually to you know, <laughs> take these concepts and you're not worried about peer review. You're worried about like, is this going to work? And I'll find out next week. You know, and it, you know, it's it's really going to matter for the world. Right. So so. So it's just fascinating in that respect. I mean,
0: well, you know, I am here today and I've got you here today to prove that uh, dry academic research can also be really fascinating and interesting because this really is. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed picking apart this study. Um, let's talk first about what previous corruption anti-corruption campaigns have been like and what, what was different this time.
1: Right. So, yeah, so there have been, you know, the, the Chinese government uh, and the party has, I think, from its beginnings, even before 1949, always worried about corruption or, or misbehavior of some kind, that the idea of party discipline, you know, goes way back to, to those Leninist roots. And they've always acknowledged it to be a problem and launched various campaigns to fix it um, at times. But... They always, almost always, kind of stuck to the small fry, right? And you know, there were there were a couple exceptions: the the mayor of Beijing in the mid '90s, um, party secretary of Shanghai in the in the 2000s. You know, but uh, at higher levels, that was
0: like 2002,
1: right? Yeah, in Shanghai it was. Uh, I think it was 2005. Oh, was it that? Late? No. Oh no, no, sorry, 2002. Yeah. Anyway, um, and the. Uh, so so they're always, you know, mostly small fry. Occasionally someone would go down, but it, it seemed like it was more of a one-off. And right, everyone right. was always a little bit unclear whether it was because that person was really especially corrupt or just happened to be, you know, on the wrong side of some kind of political uh, political battle, and that was the way to remove him.
0: And it was it was that the signal that you thought made this one different uh, when, when you sort of— Decided, uh, you know, we ought to pay attention to this and start gathering some data on this. Uh, when you started to see some tigers in, in in the trap as well, or or was it just was there something else about this time around that seemed uh, like it warranted closer examination?
1: Yeah, that was it. Was really the the scale of it. So um, uh, my co author really took the initiative on this project uh, and, and sort of brought it to me and got me involved, and he. So Xi Lu he was a graduate student at Berkeley uh, in economics at the time and now is a professor at uh, the National University in Singapore in the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. He came to me and said, "You know, I think this this corruption campaign is really interesting. Something's going on here, you know. There's just so many people going down and initially it might have been a story about how it's a, a purge just of particular opponents of Xi Jinping, but you know, there's there's more and more people going down and they're they're not all his enemies and so there, it seems like there's something worth looking into here.
0: So what made a couple of economists decide not to stay in their land and to venture into something that would usually be sort of the territory of the political scientist?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Well, so I, I'm I'm both. Um, I've taught in economics departments and political science departments. I've done PhD work. I started my PhD work in the political science department and then switched over to an economics department. And I've published in both. So uh, that this really is my lane is is the the where these things come together. <laughs>
0: okay, good, good, good. You're sort of straddling the uh, the median there. Let's talk about how you designed this research, about what data set you used, and how you proposed to actually extract conclusions from it, uh, because I think what stands out is this is a very data-heavy, a very data-driven study. Who who contributed the main ideas for what you were going to look for, for sort of proxies of corruption or uh, indicators of, of actual meritocracy at work?
1: Yeah, I mean, so these were definitely came out of uh, just uh, lots of conversations um, between me and, and she, so I'm not sure uh you know exactly which which idea came from from him or from me at what point um but the the key you know the key problem in trying to study quantitatively or or even systematically in any way um corruption is that you only hear about what happened or what someone did after they go down right so you can't just look at the people who went down and say okay well look this is how corrupt they are this is what dif- makes them differ from someone else because you can't take for granted that, in fact, they were more corrupt than anyone else. It might just be that they were the ones who, who got arrested. So we pursued a few different strategies with this and basically looking at kind of those those two questions that, uh, Kaiser, that you mentioned at the start, like what evidence is there for sort of a, a network effect of particular people being targeted or particular people or, or groups of people being protected? And then also we looked at what evidence can we find that the people who
0: were targeted were more in corrupt. fact, corrupt, right. Yes. right, right. So, uh, how did you source the data for the study? And and I mean, I still, I guess we haven't decided yet. Now, what were the proxies that you decide? How did you decide? How did you? Uh, let's there, there's two pieces of this, as you said. First, let's let's start with the second part of the, the, the you mentioned. How do we decide whether somebody who's gone down was in fact corrupt? How do we gauge the levels of corruption in the, the geography over which they had jurisdiction?
1: Right. So we used, um, we sort of built on on, uh, work other people have done looking at um, the idea of meritocracy in China. So the idea is that people are promoted based on their economic performance, right? And if you talked to, you know, any official at the local level, um, you know, through the 90s and 2000s and said, you know, how do you get ahead in the Communist Party? I think they would tell you, you know, it's development, it's, it's doing these projects, it's bringing in business to my town. And... The way that people have uh, quantitatively tested that was by looking at the GDP growth of uh, of a particular city or, or region while it was under the under the jurisdiction or under the control of a particular official. So the idea is meritocracy is if you uh, well, so as as uh, as your listeners may or may not know, people are rotated very very frequently through the Chinese system. So they Sorry. they only serve you know basically three to five years in a particular position, like mayor of a city or party secretary. So you can just, there's not an official term limit, or at least the term limit is usually not the reason why they get moved, but they spend that short period of time and then they get promoted um, or not. And so we can look at who got promoted. And the idea is meritocracy would say that the right people are getting promoted, people who perform or who otherwise ought to get promoted. And there's others who've gathered some, some evidence in that. Um, in that direction. So conversely, what we looked at is really where the meritocracy seemed to be breaking down.
0: Right. I can see how that works. So if you look at, at somebody, uh, you, you you look in an area and you count the number of people who were promoted despite poor economic performance, poor GDP growth in that area, you can probably say, well, this guy was promoted despite the poor performance, evidence of corruption or the breakdown of meritocracy. But the the, the other claim seems a little more difficult. And this isn't what you addressed, but the other claim that if, if somebody is promoted and economic performance seems to have been good, it isn't necessarily because of this person's good work. It could be any number of other sort of secular uh, forces a, a, in play, right? I mean, you, you can't isolate the variable as this person's good work. So, I mean, while, while this doesn't in, in, in any way defeat the central claim of your, your paper, it does call into question whether you, we can go on to say, uh, and this is evidence that China's system isn't that quite meritocratic.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think any any economist would say, you know, we're, we're constantly complaining in, in the US that, you know, please don't give your president credit for whatever happened in the stock market this week that's or right. in the, in the that's GDP exactly growth I had over the mind. past yeah. couple of years, right? And and that's generally true. I mean, especially, you know, that's especially true in the US, where it's such a large, diverse economy, where no individual has that much control. Um, it's it's still true to an extent in China. You know, we're, we're using GDP growth as a measure of their accomplishment. It's not It's not the only measure. Um, you know, you also see uh, a tendency among Chinese officials to do sort of show projects, you know, look, I've got an airport or look, I rebuilt the city wall or something, I've created a tourist zone. And so they're, they're doing a lot of things to, to demonstrate um, their economic management to the higher-ups. But it just happens that, you know, because these, these macroeconomic figures are published, we can look at them.
0: Right, right, right. And how did you source the data for the study? Uh, how much of this was just simply... Available through sort of, you know, newspaper reports, or how much of it did you required more digging?
1: So, so this is, um, uh, I'd say, a little bit of a trend both in economics and political science um, that you know it's getting harder and harder to get the inside scoop in China or to get access to people to talk about things, Um, and so uh, a lot of us are moving in the direction of like, what can we get with with secondary data, Um, and in this particular case, so it's, it's all, it's all basically out there if you know where to look and how to interpret it. So, you know, we're looking at macroeconomic data at the city level. So that's all, uh, available in databases. Um, people's promotion patterns, their past histories right, is all very I mean, available. Man. Yeah. Um, or what about
0: people who got sacked? I mean, that's always reported. And
1: well, so if they, if they, if they got sacked in terms of like what, you know, left their job and what they did next, we, we, that, that becomes available immediately. And then, um, what we I mean, did to, for the actual arrests, right. we used the CDIC data. So, so ah, I or, or not data, but they they publicize. They don't publicize everyone. Everyone they publicize people they choose to. You know, once they've gotten far enough with their investigation, you know, they may have been under Shuangwei for quite a while by the time this report comes out. But once they've decided that they're guilty, they announce that they're. Basically, they announce they're guilty, and then and then the courts are allowed to do to do their work and to confirm that the party was in fact right.
0: Shuanggui refers to this system where, where people are summoned to appear at a particular place at a particular time, and it's just become a word that just sort of means you're. You're screwed. You're gonna be. <laughs> yes, it's, you're gonna have. You know, you know it, it's gonna involve cattle prods or something.
1: Yeah, that's that's the general perception. I mean, it is. The idea is there. You know, remember they're a revolutionary party. So it's like if you're a member of a, of a revolutionary underground party and your boss says, you know, show up here for a meeting, then you do it. But the way that what looks to outsiders is, you know, the boss of a large multinationally active firm disappears for a few weeks and no one knows where he is, even his shareholders. Or right. Right. the the party secretary of a city suddenly goes incommunicado and, you know, starts missing meetings and, and no one knows or no one's willing to say what happened to him.
0: So did you guys have to manually then just sift through newspaper articles and the CDIC data and stuff like that to figure out? Or were you able to use an AI algorithm to
1: do that or I think um, so some people are moving towards the AI algorithms that's and that's something that we might do as a follow-up but yeah this was this was done the, the old-fashioned way so just digging through um, you know all the all the different sources and trying to you know uh, figure out which ones are sort of more credible um, and uh, could really tell us what was going on and which ones were, were, were less credible and, and shouldn't shouldn't be sort of included in the data set.
0: Okay, so that was the second piece. So the first thing you said was to look at the, the sort of clientele is the networks, right? How did you do that? How did you figure out who was actually connected to whom? I think I remember reading that you used, you borrowed from Google, right? You, you used the good old sort of PageRank algorithm. Uh, can you explain how that works and why you thought that was the, the, the best way to, to to look at these networks of connection?
1: Right, so there's one question: is how do you how do you document the network? Like, how do you decide who's connected to who? So, so this was actually something that um, that we hit on early on that this provided. Uh, a window into some things that you can't normally see in Chinese politics, right? right? You know, there's always people talking about, oh, this person's in this faction, this person's in that faction, or these guys are buddies because I heard they worked together in Shanxi 17 years ago, and they were, so therefore I assume they're really close. And and people have researched that um, for for various uh, other studies in China, you know, looking at whether people maybe overlapped in in their work environment or whether one of them was probably, you know, the, would have been the boss when someone got promoted, therefore he, they must be, you know, he must like him. Uh, or, you know, did they go to the same university or they're from the same province? They have that kind of hometown connections. So we have all these proxies, you know, to suggest that these people are more likely to be connected than um, than just, you know, two random uh, cadres on the street. But what we could do is when people get arrested, especially when two people get arrested, then if they have a connection, that's much more likely to be reported. So it might be reported in the original uh, Discipline Inspection Committee report saying, you know, this person gave bribes to that person to get promoted, or, you know, these people are engaged in corrupt collusion of some kind. Or the other thing is, you know, the the media in China are obviously uh, heavily censored and, you know, subject to party jurisdiction. So they know what can be reported on so there's a lot of things that a good chinese journalist will know that's going on they'll know who's connected to whom but they're not allowed to talk about it right. uh, under ordinary circumstances those guys are both still in office but if two people both go down and they're now labeled as bad guys then you can start reporting on some things that maybe you already knew but you couldn't talk about before and of course you know the chinese journalists you know just like any good journalist, they love to report on the muck if they're given a chance to. So, so if you turn them loose, then then they'll tell you a lot of things. But they only get turned loose if, if both those people go down.
0: Right. So, how does the PageRank whole thing uh, work into this? How does that that, right. that play
1: in? So, so we build a network of you know, uh, these connections are not um, you know, it's not like a, like a say your your connections among your facebook friends, right, where you're sort of equals. Generally these connections the information we had is, you know, this person's subordinate to that person. It's
0: hierarchical, right? Yeah, it's
1: hierarchical. So one person, you know, in some sense reports to another, you know, just like a page can refer to another. Exactly, um, right. And so it's actually a very simple application of the of the page rank algorithm. It's not as complicated as, you know, what the original uh, Google folks um, you know, had to had to deal with, but but this gives us a way of um, not just saying, oh, this person's connected to a lot of people, therefore he's important, because maybe he's connected to a lot of people, but that's because he was, you know, there was one den of thieves in some township that went down and got reported about. Then we'd have, oh, this guy's connected to a ton of people, but none of them matter. What we want to look at is who's connected to people who are themselves connected to a lot of people who are to the, themselves have a lot of subordinates, and find an objective way to sort of uh, calculate that, like who's really at the top of the heap.
0: That's great. Uh, so there's a central claim to the work, and that is that. The one that's really the claim that's grabbed all the headlines and all the attention, uh, that is basically that the anti-corruption campaign really does seem to target corrupt individuals, uh, but that it doesn't touch people who have close personal connections to Xi Jinping. Uh, one of the obvious questions for me is this. Are the people close to Xi Jinping all people who appear to have risen on merit? If you look at these people, did they... Uh, were they in charge of economically successful regions? right so that's a little bit harder to pick out because they're a smaller number um
1: so the it also has to do with some issues of how we set up the the research so to get a comparable group um looking at you know whether performance mattered, we looked at city level leaders um so that's that's one. Tier of um, of the political system, but when we looked at who was getting protected, we looked at provincial level leaders, so provincial um, provincial party standing committee people. So there's about you know ten or so per uh, per province, and we looked at that pool. But those people don't necessarily have individual control over um, an economic zone, and the people lower down, they may not have. They're less likely to have the kind of direct connections to Xi Jinping that we could. Um, again we can't we can't document directly because obviously Xi Jinping is you know still in charge, so no one's going to be allowed to report on uh who are his cronies so instead we have to use the proxies of you know did they go to the same university with him did they work together with him um at similar levels back when he was you know in in local level government um or yeah, I don't think other those,
0: those that's not hard to determine i mean i think those, those in, with enough of those proxies you can get a pretty clear sense of who is 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 individually connected to Xi Jinping. But I, I would think that you would be able to then look at even if they are just at provincial level, you can use that that other measure that you did in that sort of first run, that first run that you did where you looked at the World Bank survey of of, of perceptions of corruption, of conveniently from the year 2012, you know the year right right before, uh, and then looked at whether that province had had a lot of arrests in it, a lot of a lot of people taken down. Couldn't you've done the same thing with uh, the people associated with Xi Jinping and said, okay, so this guy, you know, ran Jilin and was Jilin uh, uh, at or near the top of the the corrupt provinces list from the World Bank survey? Um, well, so they didn't have a full list of provinces. They had
1: they did twenty two cities, right? Because implementing this is a survey of of business people of. You know, uh, how did they – did they view – basically, did they view corruption as an obstacle to their business? Um, So it was not naming names or anything, but it was in 2012, was corruption a problem where you worked? And what we did find uh, is that places where uh, more people tended to report that that corruption was a problem – also, they had, you know they tended to report problems with like taxation or regulation or the judicial system. Uh, those also subsequently had a lot more arrests. But in fact, they had some
0: of the big big arrests.
1: Yeah, um, right. but well, but not so many from the from the sort of uh, big tiger networks actually. Um, well,
0: actually, I mean, I, when I was looking at the, I, it, it was notable that the three big tigers were in provinces that ranked highest among the the. Uh, the number of arrests and uh, correlated to the, the, the perceptions of, of of. Anyway, So that's, yeah. uh, that's for, for next time. Uh well, let me let go back to something else, um, because, you know, we, the other interesting claim or one of the other many interesting claims in, in there are findings in there uh, was that the individuals who were targeted. I mean, we're talking about the tigers and, and not the flies. The. Um, uh, that Bo Xilai didn't really number among the most networked and connected of the people who went down. I think that most people would have expected that he was kind of the the major mover behind all the the mischief and the the machinations of, of 2012, and it was in fact you know the, the the three big tigers that you named. So, uh, and now let's go into who they are. So, Joe Yong Kang, I think a lot of people know who he was, you know, because he was a Politburo Standing Committee member, of course, and you know, had security in his portfolio. So, right. You know, he was a really, really close, I mean, a big power base in the petroleum sector. And, yeah. And, uh, the other two maybe are not as familiar. Ling Zihua, uh, who was sort of a fixer and a right-hand man to, uh, actually, you know, a holdover from the Huan and Wen period, who, of course, when his son was killed in a, a fiery blaze on the North Wharf Ring Road, uh, it wrapped his Ferrari around a uh, like a, a concrete pillar. Uh, it's horrible, but um, that that's when he maybe came to a lot of people's attention. And the third one, Surung, is probably even known by le- less people. Can you quickly ID who they, they were uh, or Surung especially what what he was and uh, sort of his power base was?
1: Right. so um, yeah, so you did a good summary of the the first three. So Joe Yong Kong, you know, he was at the Politburo, so he was at the highest levels of the state. He was in charge of the the what they call the political and legal affairs. Group, which is basically in charge of, you know, the, the public security and everything and a lot of other things and the legal system. Um, and previously he'd been at the top of the petroleum, uh, ministry and also had been the, uh,
0: the chairman of, of, uh, one of the big like Sinopec or something. I yeah. There, I and know.
1: also was, was head of Sichuan. Um, oh, right. Right. Of course. For, he for ran Sichuan. Yeah. He ran right. Sichuan. Right. And so then, um, and then, uh, Ling Jihua, yeah, he was in this sort of weird job that, you know, there's something called the general office, which right. sounds like, you know, someone would be just be like a secretary, but their job is to, to draft party directives and memos and, you know, decide what documents will be classified and, and arrange memos and things. And apparently this gives them... It's sort of a low key job, but it gives them a tremendous amount of power right. um, and, and influence. And Su Rong was um, he was a, he was more of a local government guy. He had been the party secretary of uh, Gansu and Qinghai and then and then most recently was the was the Jiangxi party secretary. Um, and he was basically went down for you know more corruption in his
0: province. Right. And uh, again, so Jiangxi, Shanxi, where where the Linzihua was based, and then Sichuan, where where Zhou Yongkang was based, those were the three that ranked the highest in the t- total number of of people taken down. I remember.
1: Yes, that's right at at the um, at the level of the uh, at the provincial level government. At, at the provincial yeah. level
0: government level, right, right, right. Uh, that's that's fascinating. So, Peter, I think many of our listeners are maybe even too young, or I hope they are, uh, to to remember. All that transpired in that really tumultuous year of 2012, uh, you know, in, in the run up to Xi Jinping actually taking the presidency early the following year, uh, really crazy year that involved attempted defections to, to the U.S. consulate in Chengdu by, as so said, so the, the whole Boise Lai scandal, uh, the the murder of Neil Haywood coming to light, and then, you know, uh, this Rumors of, of an actual attempted coup. There were people who were moving against Xi, certainly. Uh, can you remind people what happened that year?
1: Right. So um, so with with Bo Xilai, um, he was the the party chief in Chongqing. He was very similar to Xi Jinping in a lot of ways, like uh, charismatic, good-looking guy. Prince you know, Ling, Highly yeah. articulate. Um, he also had a distinctive policy style, which is quite unusual among Chinese officials, you know. You're, the the goal is always to be as bland as possible until you're on top. Um, right. And but he was known for in Chongqing he was kind of pursuing a different model from the rest of the country, um, more populist, uh, very heavy anti crime, anti gang approach. Um, also, very statist in terms of how the economy was going to be run. So, not so market oriented as, as everyone else had been in that period in the past 10, 20 years.
0: The Chongqing uh, model. The right. Chongqing
1: model. And also, you know, bringing back a lot of the Mao nostalgia, you know, that right. revolutionary era stuff, playing the songs and trying to get everyone to, you know, feel that kind of patriotism. Uh, the shorthand was the party.
0: strike black, sing red, remember? Yeah, yeah.
1: that's exactly right.
0: So, it's strike black meant go after the black or hei the the, the the uh, organized crime syndicates, and then Sing Red was, you know, sing these communist nostalgic, you know, cultural revolution era songs, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's funny going back and, you know, reading about what was his distinctive thing and it kind of, you know, I feel like uh, Xi Jinping kind of borrowed a lot of that, that playbook, <laughs> um, you know, later. I mean, he's he they, they seem a lot more alike now than uh, than they, they did back then when everyone thought Xi Jinping was going to be a big market reformer and, uh, and, you know, maybe even a liberalizer. Um, and he was he was a major player, you know. So also had that revolutionary background. A uh, dad who was one of the one of the big movers under Mao, and of course, therefore, also suffered under Mao, just like Xi Jinping and his family. And you know, people had had ta- before Xi Jinping was clearly lined up to be the the next general secretary and president. There there was talk about Bo taking on that role as well. So he really was. If you were thinking about who you'd want to purge, is kind of the guy you'd think. Okay, this is the one you want to sideline. Right. Um, and. But what happened was just completely uh out of the blue for, for everyone. Um, he uh basically his, his former police chief fled to the US Embassy, um, not in Chongqing, but in the next next nearest large city, Chengdu in Sichuan, um, and uh had a meeting which, you know, uh, has not, I think, been officially disclosed what went on, but he had a meeting there and asked for asylum and they said, I think Again, not disclosed, but I think the answer was well you 're just a crook, and you're, you don't really deserve a silent uh, right. for you know you 're not being oppressed if like you're, you're a member of a gang, and your gang buddies don 't like you anymore but But what he disclosed, and what what came out uh, very rapidly after that was that there was a British businessman who was accused of you know maybe having some kind of uh, spy connections or being some kind of fixer who had been apparently murdered by or on the orders of Oshiilai's wife. And Gu yeah. Gu Lai, exactly. And uh, basically, you know, the the investigation spiraled very rapidly. Um, something that, that journalists have told me, you know, Western journalists told me is that they were actually surprised by how there was a lot of people willing to talk about him. So I think once it was decided oh, it was that this pretty opened,
0: clear that, that that this was allowed and kind of deliberately allowed. Yeah. Right? So so there were people providing information directly to uh, well placed Chinese journalists, and then. To, to, yeah, what's exactly.
1: So it wasn't it wasn't like a lot of things that happen in China where it's covered up and sort of once they decide, you know, if they can, they wait until like six months after it's all resolved. And then they tell us all, you know, what they the version of the story they want to have happen. It, it played out um, on a public stage much more than than usual. Um, so so in February was when uh, the police chief went to the went to the embassy um, by March. Bull was removed from from office. And by the end of the year, he'd been uh, removed from all party posts and and placed under arrest. Um, so that was and that was all before Xi Jinping uh, formally took power. He was already anointed as the successor because he'd been named vice president in the previous um, previous party Congress um, five years previously but um, the uh, but he wasn't actually in power yet so then then end of two thousand twelve, Xi Jinping takes power um, as head of the party, then as a formality, then at the beginning of the year he becomes he's uh, elected president um, in two thousand and thirteen. And then then sort of the crackdown the main crackdown started, so that happened it started in two thousand thirteen, but two thousand and fourteen became really intense uh, with just large numbers of people getting arrested, uh, and also in 2014 was when several of these big tigers went down. Um, Xu Sai-ho, who was a top military leader, like literally the top military guy aside from Xi Jinping in and his Xiong, yeah. yeah and then um, and then in the in the political side of things, um, Zhou Yongkang, Kong um Su Rong and Ling Jihua, who we mentioned earlier, uh who again were it had never happened before that like this many people at high levels actually went down. So there's, you know, the the saying you should you should SWAT at a fly but never never hit at a tiger it was right. a sort of journalistic slogan for a long time. Uh but the same thing was really true for corruption allegations. If you were high enough up, then whatever you'd done, you know, no one would no one would dare start the kind of battle that might erupt if if everyone started pointing fingers about what the other top guys were doing, uh, but that was what was happening.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I was surprised though that relatively few of the direct associates of Povsicli were brought up on charges during that time.
1: Right. So that was a really interesting thing, uh, a pattern that we looked at. Um, so, so we mentioned this this uh, network, you know, that we developed of uh, people with reported connections and uh, who was arrested and and who they were reported as linked to so so using those reported links building this network and looked at who was on top of it so you know joe yong kong su rong ling jihua these three guys really really stood out and then you know if you if you rank people you know using using the the google PageRank algorithm <laughs> then um you find you know bo xilai was like he was uh, below 20th yeah right? right so just way way down the list uh which w- and what that means you know, in practice is that in our data, there were not many people reported as being his cronies who are subordinate to him um, compared to, you know, a lot of other people. And that's, that's interesting to us because, you know, if you're thinking about, again, removing the political competition, the guy who, you know, under maybe extraordinary circumstances, but realistic ones, could come back and, and be uh, the the one who undermines or, or opposes the current leadership, Boa seemed like, you know, the most plausible character. Right. Um and if it were Stalin, right, you would expect that, like you know, him and all his relatives and associates to the fifth generation would be out in the gulag. <laughs> um, but that's not uh, that's not what we see in our data. Um, instead, you know, there's this focus on, you know, Su Rong, Ling Jihua, who you know they were powerful, but there is no sense that they were direct you know, challengers rivals. To, yeah, and direct right. rivals to, to Xi Jinping.
0: Fascinating. You know, you you point out that uh, among the Politburo Standing Committee members. It was only C who was able, apparently, to protect his associates, that the others were not able to. And you, you said in a footnote in, in the piece, I remember, that, that this was not actually the case in previous crackdowns. Uh, what accounts for this? What accounts for for uh, the ability previously for uh, Politburo Standing Committee members to to protect their, uh, their associates? How did it change this time? I mean, is it just because this time no one was protected or—
1: that does seem to be uh, does seem to be the case. So yeah, so we looked at we looked at all the provincial Politburo Standing Committee members um, as of two thousand twelve. and we looked at who who had some connection to Politburo leaders, also to the three big tigers um, and to Xi Jinping specifically. And so having if you had a connection to three big tigers at that point, you were much more likely to go down. If you had a connection to Xi Jinping. Um, in the sense that you you went to Tsinghua, or you were born in Beijing, or you worked together with him at some point uh, when he was in the provinces, then you would absolutely not go down. Like literally zero of them uh, right. were arrested. But then, yeah, when you look at if you even when you clump all other six Politburo members together, we didn't see a sort of protective effect. Their their associates, people who we believe to be connected with them, were just as likely to go down as anyone else. So the question is why why were they not Able to protect their people, and I think it does. And you know, this isn't something we can observe directly in our data. So this, is, but you know, my my sense is this really does show the sort of demise of the collective leadership first and the among incredible might approach. of yeah yeah FFC, they, they, yeah the converse of that the incredible might of of Xi Jinping in a way that Hu Jintao did not you know stand above uh, everyone else in the Politburo yeah, um, in in this way and even you know even Jiang Zemin maybe did not. Uh, even at the end, when he'd been there for quite a while and cemented a lot of power, he wasn't uniquely powerful and, and having that unique level of authority that um, meant that he could sort of ride over the interests of other people at the senior level in the right, party.
0: Right. Right. So let's summarize then um, what what some of the, the actual findings are. And We've just as we've just said, uh, it, this testifies to the the, the unprecedented. Uh, Arrogation of power in the hands of Xi Jinping, the end of collective leadership. No, that's that's all obvious enough. Respecting the the particulars of the anti-corruption campaign, the main claim is that it indeed it looks as though people who were actually corrupt, as measured by poor performance of of the regions in which they were responsible, uh, but promotion no, nonetheless, they, they were very likely to go down. And when we say very likely to, we'll do is there a statistic? Is there a way that you, you describe the, the statistical effect? Uh, uh, um,
1: I don't have that number offhand. We did look at it. But, but so it's, it's, it's pronounced. It's very yeah, substantial. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, well, substantial for it. you know, it's like, if it's, you know, 10 or 20 percent higher likelihood, like, that's a pretty, you know. Uh, but the, I remember it's not it being like more than like, that. Like, yeah, right, it, right, was, right. it was substantial, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, And yeah, so they were more so people who got promoted when you wouldn't have expected them to be promoted based on performance and also based on other indicators of, you know, what sort of the usual way that you advance within the hierarchy in the areas where uh, Joe, Ling and Sue, these three big tigers were influential. People were getting promoted sort of despite that. And those those same areas were where we see a lot of arrests.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. And then the, the, the major claim again is that, that Xi Jinping's people were protected. And this con- yeah. connects to what I, what I said first, but right. now, um, what claims does that then knock down? I mean, you've d- dispensed with some, uh, your evidence is, is, you know, pretty solid that what does it falsify now? What are some of the, the claims that have been out there as part of conventional wisdom that you, you are ready to say farewell to?
1: Well, you know, as an academic, we're, I'm always in favor of further research and, and willing to be overturned. But I think it does. Uh, it certainly, you know, the, you could, I'd say it, it knocks down things which I would. Anyone who really knows China probably knew was a straw. They're both straw man, but you nevertheless read in the media and you know by talking heads and public policy figures. So the one the one extreme version is that this is, you know, this is Stalin or this is Mao, this is just someone, you know, chopping the heads off of everyone who who opposed him in order to to gather all power to himself. And w- you know, we can see that it 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 is discriminate. So it's going after people who are by, by our best indications it, it does seem to be targeting people who are, who are more corrupt and so that you know in that sense the the party deserves some, some credit for they're actually uh, you know regardless of you know I, I disagree with the means but the the objective of cutting back on the level of corruption that was uh, going on in China it does seem like they're really trying to do that
0: yeah, it's then the, level. Right, right. yeah.
1: and then the flip side of it um, is the idea on the other extreme that it's purely noble. I mean, this would be the party's line that, yeah, we're just going after the most corrupt guys and the most corrupt guys go down. The fact that Xi Jinping's associates were protected suggests to us that, you know, he is using his power to
0: protect them. Although I'd, li- I'd like to see how their performance tracked against the, you know, the fact that they uh, were promoted. I'd, 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 I'd want that as the final piece of evidence to suggest that that part of the claim is true. I yeah, mean, that's something could, we're following up.
1: on. there's a smaller yeah. number of them. So we can right. look at, at Xi Jinping, like we can look at what we can say is that in our data, the provinces that had fewer, fewer arrests tended to promote more on meritocratic basis. Um, but the actual number of people who are sufficiently directly linked that we could be confident in saying that they're Xi's people is is fairly small. And so it, it uh, becomes harder due to do uh, statistical analysis we could be
0: comfortable with. So lastly your study goes through 2015 uh is there any reason to believe that things have departed from the patterns that you've you you guys have picked up on uh in the in the years since
1: so we haven't seen um so we haven't we haven't done the study on that so you know this is you know talking without the data which as an economist you do my anything. my value is to talk well my value is to talk with the data you know the journalists they, they can tell you what you, what you can know without the data and there's likely you know they they may well be right um but, well, we haven't seen as many big, big people go down. Swinjung's high was the one exception. Um, but in terms of numbers, it's getting larger and larger. That suggests that it's certainly not slowing down. Um, seems to be moving a little bit more towards you know people in the SOE sector, maybe not the not the government sector. Um,
0: well, they already cleared out the government, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, which you know that you would, would be good if they if factor, they actually right, could right.
1: clear it out and feel like they they'd made their point and and gotten the the worst of the of the rotten eggs out of there, uh, and then and then lighten up. Then that might be an optimistic trend. Um, but it's not it's not it's not clear that they've actually made that judgment. It certainly hasn't been. Uh, um, yeah, it's not clear they've made that judgment yet.
0: Peter, do you have handy the, the total number, at least by the time of the cutoff of your study, of officials who had been investigated? I think it was in the hundreds of thousands, or in something.
1: Um, I saw uh, actually I, from so from our study, we we used people who were investigated and whose names were published in the CDIC by uh, by 2015. So that that's we we're looking at but sort of the first of wave, end right. of 2015. Yeah, so we're looking at the first wave of the crackdown, um, and. Uh, but that was that was just a thousand people who actually we could get their names. I, the, I was looking at some estimates last night. And I think people are saying, you know, that the total number as of end of last year was 20 to 30,000 people wow. overall. Wow. And, you know, they're not all people who Xi Jinping, you know, looked wrong at Xi Jinping someday. So it's pretty, pretty clear that they're, <laughs> you know, he's, he's got to have some other some other means of, of deciding who goes down.
0: Uh, Peter, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, what are you going to do next? Are you going to follow are you going to continue to follow this?
1: Yeah, so I think there's, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, updating what we did towards the future. And I think looking at, um, you know, so is is the second wave, like, is there this evolution, like you said, that, um, you know, because if it was a one-off, then we could, you know, we, we sort of were thinking like, oh, when this dies down, that'll be a good place to, cr- you know, cut down or, cr- sorry, Uh, to cut off our our data collection, but it never, it never died down. So um, that's why we had to just say, okay, well, we're going to stop now and analyze what we have. (laughs) Um, And so, so then that raises, you know, uh, is, yeah. Can we quantitatively look at, at uh, how things are changing over time? Um, I think there's a lot of interesting work to do, uh, you know, especially maybe with, with some of these newer, um, newer techniques, like machine learning to try to do something broader about like saying, okay, who, who are the outliers? You know, let's let's look at more than a few data a few characteristics let's look at like the whole range of whatever we can you know plug into our machine and say who do we expect to be promoted and are people who got promoted for the wrong reasons the ones who are getting arrested Uh, and then also look at whether promotion is is working differently under c i think it may well be because he's actually been less economy focused than um than in the past, like he, he's, you know, raising, you know, to his credit, you know, it seems like a lot more seriousness about environmental concerns, you know, not perfect, but but taking that more seriously. And, and of course, social stability is a big focus for him. So it's less about who can who can rev up their economy as fast as possible and still us. there are
0: kpis against which you can measure performance you know, yeah even if they are yeah. you know, greening or what, what have you right right right, right. so Job yeah stuff. so we
1: can try to look at those and and see uh yeah what what does get you promoted in in xi's china and, and how that's how that's
0: evolving yeah i would love to, to, to see more work on this this would be, would be great uh, i'm i'm curious first of all what kind of reaction has this gotten within uh, the academy and also has the party tried to use any of this for propagandistic purposes uh, have you seen state media publish your your findings or at least part of your findings the part that accord with their, their
1: I think that'd be a little bit tricky for them to talk about the one part and not the other part so um uh, so far i have not seen uh, seen you know they
0: find a way to do reporting. it you know
1: <laughs> yeah well i mean i'm yeah I, i'm curious but yeah they, no one no one's no one's tried it yet um and uh we'll just ha- we'll have to see how that evolves we also haven't gotten any you know warnings about like don't present this or you know don't uh, um don't talk about this research you know in china or something so um it's kind of it's kind of evolving and and uh um so far no no blowback and no attempts to use it for propaganda purposes
0: okay and just to be clear the is still in peer review process right now yeah so the right papers
1: right. the paper's going through the peer review process it's uh uh in economics in particular it's kind of interminable um and it uh, can can take years you know usually by the time something is actually published everyone's already read it who needed to read it um, right. that's just the way the way it works in our discipline you know more than more than a lot of others even.
0: Well the paper again is called personal ties meritocracy and China's anti-corruption campaign and it was co-authored with Xi Lu it was in Chinese it would be Lu, Lu Xi, right no. yeah that's right. right it's one of those damn names where, you know these two solos. Are... Let's, let's move on to recommendations, but before we do that, uh, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you enjoy the reporting, the columns, the quizzes, the podcast conversations, and all the rest of it, the best thing you can do to keep us going is to subscribe to SubChina Access. For just a few bucks a month, you can really keep up on all that's happening in China, enjoy discounts or free admission to our events, and chat with our editorial team on our Slack channel. Tell a friend... Now, uh, recommendations. Peter, what do you got for us, man? So
1: I want to recommend, uh, sort of based on life experience, two sitcoms that um, I really, really enjoy. Um, So the first one is on ABC. It's called Speechless. And it's about a family with a disabled teenage son uh, who needs a full-time aide, uses a wheelchair. Um, Also, you know, the title comes from the fact that he can't uh, speak um, with his own mouth. So instead he communicates... Uh, using a device that very, very, very loosely you could say, is kind of like what you've seen Stephen Hawking use, yeah, um, like pointing at you know pointing at words, and in this case, someone else actually reads it as you as you go through pointing it. Um, and he's and he's going to regular school, and the, the actually the show starts with him enrolling in a regular high school, you know, with with uh, um, you know just average Joe on the street classmates um, for the first time. And uh, so so this this resonates a lot with me because my own son. Um, Is going through a similar experience. He's uh, he's only eight, so he's in elementary school. But he's in there with the other kids with his aid. He also uses a communication device. Has trouble walking. Um, Now, this all sounds like really depressing and earnest. But what what's great about this show is it's is it's funny and body, and it makes fun of everything about uh, being um, in in the world of disability. Was it's kind of its own you know surreal parallel world that uh, that the rest of you don't don't see, and so. Um, it really resonates with me but uh are you letting your son watch it as well uh yeah he he's not he's not he's still more into uh into cartoons i have right. to say yeah. you know, you know but mean. um but you know it's his, his uh, the whole family so there's also two other children um two other younger children in the family um and i have other my other kids uh watch the show and can kind of see their experience there's mini driver is the uh the oh, yeah. female lead she's the sort of disability tiger mom which um reminds me a lot of my own wife of like all the you know fights you try to get in politely with the school district to get, you know, all the resources you really need for your child and, and make sure they're fully included in the way you want. Um there's a goofy dad who plays guitar badly and likes obscure outdated rock music, which I think guys <laughs> are like relate with. Yeah. Um and uh and then I don't know if you if, if you know uh Reno nine one one, Cedric Yarbrough mm-hmm. from there is mm-hmm. uh is the aide. Um and he's he's just really funny. Um so that's one. Then the other one um is uh Kim's Convenience on Netflix. Oh yeah um, and that that is a
0: just Canadian It's about a
1: Canadian-Korean family uh, running a convenience store. Um, Again, it's a sitcom. Um, You know, the the parents are first generation. The kids don't even speak Korean that well. Um, And, uh, you know, so it's hilarious but also very sweet. And, you know, if you uh, are Asian-American or grew up around Asian-Americans, there's just a a lot to connect with. You'll recognize a lot of things, and and they really capture um, a lot of that dynamic, both – Within the family and and between the family and and you know the the world around them.
0: Well, those are two great recommendations. So, Speechless and Kim's Convenience. Yeah. So, ABC and then on Netflix. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I am going to you know speaking about like um, obscure music. I'm gonna go with one of my musical recommendations. I'm gonna recommend two playlists on Spotify. They're both sort of made by Spotify. They're not an individual users' playlists. Although you know, I know there are plenty of them um, that are in that in that same. Couple of genres. They're related to genres. Uh, one is uh, a playlist called "Instrumental Madness." Uh, if you like instrumental rock, I mean, really, this stuff is just sort of unapologetically showy, offy, uh, wonderfully uh, crazy amount of, of chops, just chops galore. A lot of these guys are, you know, eight string guitar players or whatever. Uh, you know, and and I've I've discovered, you know. Thirty bands that, or artists that I'd never of 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 otherwise discovered. There's just a renaissance going on in in these styles of music, in in uh, sort of very very chops oriented progressive rock, uh, math rock, what have you. And the other one is uh, a, a subgenre of all this stuff called Gent D J E N T, which is an onomatopoeia from you know the you know the you know the the sound of a of a palm muted. Heavily distorted guitar uh, playing in you know really heavily syncopated rhythmic patterns you know always really tightly with a bass drum so it's 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 crazy good uh, there's a lot of bands in this genre called gent some that I would recommend like animals as leaders as is, is one in particular mashuga that's well, a more me- metal kind of a gent band but this particular playlist just again is, is exposed me to lots and lots of others uh, it's called got gent like got milk or whatever it's uh again it's it's a spotify playlist and you know you'll get a glimpse into the kind of nutty music that uh i torture my family members with all the time at home all right peter thanks once again for 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 coming and joining us uh it was a great paper and um, it was really uh, a pleasure talking to you about it i look forward to reading more from you
1: yeah it was great to have a chance to uh to tell people more about it
0: yeah i'm I'm you know looking forward to hearing good things about your new program at university of san francisco Thanks. So, and buy more ads. <laughs> <laughs> the Cineca podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Cineca at com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Taishin Cineca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Ta for Ta, and the brand new Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China.